You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Lumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and I'm at the National Lipid Association's annual scientific sessions in Las Vegas, Nevada. With me today are some of the top winners of the NLA's Young Investigator Competition. One of them who I'm proud to have on the show today is David Tarani. David is currently a medical student at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine, and after completing his first two years of medical school, he pursued a Master's of Science in Biomedical and Translational Science from the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. David, thank you very much for joining us and talking about your study with the audience. Thank you so much for having me. So David did a fascinating study looking at HDL and inflammation as a risk factor for cardiovascular events. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you thought up the idea of this study and what you were trying to show. So in past work that we've done, we've seen that uh, increasing inflammation had an attenuation on uh, HDL's protective effect on cardiovascular disease. So we wanted to take further look into this, and what we did is that we took a look at more um, inflammatory factors as well as an index of inflammatory factors and took a look in a longitudinal study to see if um, there was an attenuation on HDL's protective effect on incident CHD and CVD events. So you really were not just looking at HDL as a predictor of events, which was information that we've had from prior studies. You were looking at either the combination of high evidence of inflammation with or without a higher low HDL, correct? Exactly. So we did basically subgroupings of three different categories of inflammation based on um, different uh, inflammatory biomarkers. And then we also did three different separate categories of HDL um, based on NCEP guidelines of high HDL greater than 60, intermediate between 40 and 60, and low HDL less than 40. Okay, and how did you uh, choose your patient population? Tell us a little bit about the population you study. So we took a look at the cardiovascular health study, and so this is a community-dwelling population. Um, it's uh, basically uh, from four different geographical areas in the United States, and it's an older population, so greater than 65 years of age. And so they kind of give the opportunity to see a lot of CHD, CVD events. So it was really great to take a look at their baseline values. And with them, we had a lot of these inflammatory factors. So tell me a little bit about how long you followed these patients until you could get enough events to it. So the, basically the follow-up time, the mean follow-up time for those with uh, CHD events was uh, 11.1 years. And then for those for CVD events was uh, 10. 10.1 years. Okay, that's really fascinating. So a little bit older population, and then you said you had a wealth of inflammatory biomarkers to look at. What all did you actually look at? Yeah, so we took a look at CRP, of course. Um, We took a look at IL-6, and we took a look at LPPLA-2. Um, and these, these were chosen largely because they've been shown to be independent uh, predictors of atherosclerosis and thus CHD events. Um, and also these were the, you know, the most available inflammatory factors in our data set, so it made it quite easy. Now, did you look at any other confounders such as inherited lipid abnormalities like LPLA, for example? So we, we did not take a look at that. That was something that we wish we had been able to do, but we hadn't. Okay, so tell me a little bit about uh, the way you set up the study and explain to our 
audience how you would take a look at this population and uh, try and glean some important information about them. Sure. So the way that we did is we, like I had said, split up our HDL into three separate categories of high, intermediate, and low. And then for each of our inflammatory biomarkers, um, IL-6, CRP, and LPPLA2, we did a similar mechanism of splitting them into three separate categories. And so there was low, intermediate, and high for each. And we paired HDL with each of these inflammatory biomarkers, as well as an index of the inf biomarkers, which was done using a Z-score sum and then splitting um, the sum into tertiles to get even distribution. And we saw um, with using incident CHD events per 1,000 person years that there was a stepwise progression in the amount of CHD events that we had with, uh, within each group with decreasing HDL as well as with increasing inflammation. Okay, so I'm going to actually get into the results of the study a, okay. little, a little bit more in a few minutes because I think that's very important. I'm a little bit interested since you're one of our prize winners. And <laughs> what, what gave you the idea to do this study? Uh, is HDL something you were interested in? And if our audience is wondering, you know, what would the implication be of looking at this? Sure. What were you hoping to accomplish by this? Absolutely. Study? So I think uh, HDL is a really hot topic right now, especially with the recent clinical trials that have come out. And uh, a lot of clinicians are kind of not sure what to do with HDL. And I think what has occurred is that we just become a lot more unsure. And so there is likely a different mechanism between HDL that we just haven't elucidated yet uh, for why, why we're having these issues with um, increasing HDL levels not being as protective as we thought. So one of the possible mechanisms of this may be inflammation, and some studies have already shown this, that um, inflammation has an effect on HDL. So we wanted to do an epidemiological study to kind of take a look and see what the uh, actual implications were for HDL. And so for some of these clinical trials, it would have been very, very interesting to see a, a stratification for high inflammation, low inflammation, and see what the effect on coronary heart disease and cardiovascular disease was. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and I'm speaking with David Tarani, a medical student and winner of the National Lipid Association's Young Investigator Competition. So, David, let's talk a little bit about the results of the trial. Did, did gender make a difference in terms of the effects of HDL and inflammation? So in our, our general models, we, we first adjusted for gender. And in addition, we took a sub-analysis and we made uh, gender-specific tertiles for each of our inflammatory biomarkers of CRP, IL-6, and LPPLA-2. And we saw even within these gender stratified tertiles that with increasing inflammation, there was an attenuation of the HDL's uh, protective effect on cardiovascular disease and coronary heart disease. Okay, so let's talk about the overall results of the study. So it really seemed to show that inflammation was a better predictor than HDL levels. Is that correct? Yeah, so I mean, inflammation played a very, very large role in um, kind of attenuation of HDL. So we saw at high levels in inflammation, uh, despite what your HDL levels were, whether they were less than 40, between 40 and 60, or greater than 60, you were still seeing high coronary heart disease events when you're comparing them to, let's say, the high HDL, low inflammatory um, biomarkers um, groups. All right, so the topic of discussion at almost every lipid meeting 
is which are the best biomarkers. So you looked at three common biomarkers, though a lot of people aren't measuring IL-6, but yeah. they're obviously measuring uh, CRP and uh, LPPLA2. So did any one of those biomarkers turn out to be a better predictor than, uh, than another? So uh, the reason that we had picked these biomarkers, again, like you said, were they were independent and associated with coronary heart disease. And uh, although there was other biomarkers we would have loved to take a look at, like fibrinogen and you know, myeloperoxidase, uh, we did take a look at these, and we saw that CRP and IL-6 were actually very, very predictive and were great biomarkers. When we took a look at LPPLA2, uh, it was a little bit more complicated um, with its effect um, on attenuation of HDL, meaning that although we did see at high levels of inflammation that there was this very prominent uh, attenuation of HDL, um, it wasn't a nice stepwise progression like we had seen um, with the other two bioinflammatory biomarkers um, with, uh, between the low to medium to high inflammatory groups. And it's possible that this was because LPPLA2 is kind of plays a dual role depending on whether it's attached to LDL or HDL. Um, so it could be either proatherogenic or um, antiatherogenic. So. Yeah, that's intriguing. You know, it's interesting when you look at the predictability in prior studies of LPPLA2. It's better predictor when the patients aren't on therapy. Exactly. Once they're on therapy, it's a little difficult exactly. to say. So was that, do you think that had some effect on the predictability? Were these patients uh, taking, for example, statin therapy? Yeah, so I think that that definitely was a possibility. Um, even when we were taking LPPLA2 in our models, we, we saw that there was um, basically an um, interaction term with the HDL levels. Um, so it's very, very possible that that was the case. Okay, so very interesting. That brings up the, an obvious question, which was, did therapy seem to be, have an effect on the results of your study, or did you try to, did you try to account for that in your statistical So analysis? we actually did not uh, try to account for that, largely because, you know, this was a, a longitudinal study. What has been shown is that uh, with, you know, with the use of lipid medications that there is also a decrease in inflammation with these. We did account for lipid and, um, and for statin use in our models, though. I guess what you're telling us is that, you know, for those people who are still on therapy but whose inflammatory markers still showed significant amount of active inflammation, their HDL just was no longer as predictive it, of... Exactly. Benefit. I think this study also brings up a really interesting point is uh, whether those patients that are well controlled with their LDL levels, um, let's say they're something around 70 or 80, let's say, whether a decrease in inflammation will kind of take care of this residual risk in these patients. And that's a study that's, I mean, getting started right now, uh, Paul Richter, um, he's taking a look at using methotrexate at low levels to see in these patients with, uh, you know, well-controlled well um, LDL levels if that they're going to have added benefits. And then finally, were all of these primary prevention patients, in other words, did you start out with patients that had not had events? Or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mention that before. So all our baseline pa uh, patients were patients without any cardiovascular disease at baseline. Okay, well, I have to congratulate you on a really interesting study. I'm not sure it sheds any light about the activity of HDL, but... <laughs> You know, my take on it from what you've discussed with us is that it, it tells us that 
once you have an inflammatory marker, the predictive value of using HDL, even in primary prevention patients, at least older than age 60, right? Age 65, yes. Older than age 65 doesn't seem to be uh, as useful as an inflammatory marker. Exactly. Well, that is really fantastic. I, uh, I congratulate you on winning the NLA's award. Thank you. And uh, I greatly appreciate it as someone who's heavily vested in the National Lipid Association for, uh, that you took the time to present at of the course. meeting and share your research results with us. Now, in terms of the recent clinical trials, as you know, the, I always say HDL is a lot like psychiatry. Half of what we know is correct. Nobody knows which half it is. Uh -huh. So there's been a lot of uh, discussion around the HPS2 Thrive data and the AIM High not showing benefit. Those patients had sort of well-treated LDLs and non-HDLs in mm -hmm. those trials. But do you have any thoughts about how your study might fit into the big picture of what we know and what we don't know about HDL? Uh, I think there's a lot that we don't know about HDL. Largely, whether or not niacin is actually increasing the HDL that is having this protective effect, it's very possible that the different HDL particle sizes are more predictive of whether or not we have, you know, this reverse cholesterol transport, and we are actually taking a look. Um, we want to take a look at this. Um, so. What, I'm, what I basically am trying to say is that we're just not sure anymore. This has kind of put HDL up in the air. Um, a lot of people have made very good points that these patients were very well controlled and that a lot of these patients wouldn't have even gotten niacin in the first place. So how, how could we take, a, take this study to heart based on that? Um, so when we take a look at these studies in the future, I think it would be very important to take a look at also HDL particles as well as their inflammation for stratification. Unfortunately, we run out of time, though. This is a topic we could discuss for several hours, I'm sure. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and you've been listening to Lipid Lumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association on ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com lipids, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you very much for listening, and David Tarani, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much.